Well, welcome to Inside EMS, the internationally recognized Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Avalaro, and Medtronic is the proud sponsor of this Inside EMS podcast. Every emergency call brings a new opportunity to make a difference. Learn how capnography monitoring from Medtronic can help at medtronic.com slash EMS. With me always is my good friend, my right hand, my best friend, Kelly Grayson. KG, how are you doing? I'm good, brother. How are you? You know, it's all about life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. I got to tell you this. That's true. There are 28 shopping days left till Christmas. And as usual, as usual, you do not have to get me anything this year. Well, okay. <laughs> oh, man. You mean I'm going to have to return this? I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I got you some I, nice cologne because God knows you need it. Nice. You've always said to me that I'm the, the best smelling man in EMS. Not you are. The you are. You're, you're a good smelling guy and a darn fine dancer. And I don't have the Ray Barashansky hair. I don't have the Chris uh, Call hair. I don't have the, uh, who else has got Chris Montera hair, but I Tyler do take the, 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 the what? He's got He's got awesome hair. Tyler Christofulli, you know. Oh, okay. So there's a few. Single but I, I will keeping take, the makers of hair products in business. I will take the uh, best smelling man in EMS, though. So thank you for the call. Uh, I will accept right. that. Go ahead and send it to me via carrier pigeon. So, you know, Kelly, one of the things I think we talk about today is for years and years, we hear that we need to start looking or we need to look for medical alert bracelets as we continue our mm -hmm. patient assessment. And it really kind of got me to think about, are we doing a good job in our patient assessment? But the reason that the catalyst for this story really comes up is that we're starting to see more and more different things that are popping up into our uh, career field or into our patients' uh, lives that make our career field easier. It used to be that they had those flimsy medic alert bracelets, and now they went ahead and went to more of a, of a robust jewelry, whether they were watches or whether they were bracelets or whatever they were. And, you know, I was intrigued, uh, you know, a couple weeks or so back where we're now starting to see permanent medical tattoos offer alternatives to medic alert bracelets. And I've actually seen patients that on the inside of their forearm, just above their wrist, they've had something that said, you know, diabetic. And, you know, mm -hmm. so uh, the EMS-1 staff had a story that came out of Boston that tattoo technology company has announced a permanent medical tattoo program and it's an alternative to these medical alert bracelets. And one of the things that I thought it would be interesting to touch on is, are we doing our due diligence as EMS providers that when we find people who are unresponsive, are we going through the process of looking for medical alert bracelets as we are told to, or are we, are we just going through the protocol of the coma cocktail and just hoping that, you know, we throw this spaghetti on the wall and we hope that something sticks? I think patient assessment is becoming one of those forgotten skills that we need to be able to ensure that we're doing everything that we can, Kelly, to yeah. figure out what's going on with this patient. And that may include looking through their wallet. That may include, you know, cutting off their clothes up to their elbows to make sure that they, you know, don't have medical alert or something like that. And I don't know that we're doing that. I mean, what's your feel about this medical alert thing? Well, I, I think uh, I think the medical alert tattoo is, is a pretty cool thing. Um, I, I don't know that depending on how the tattoo is used, that it will be valid in, in all 50 states. But it, it certainly as a source of information to, to direct, the, uh, to direct the, the medical personnel to where to look for more or, or where the, the, the uh, full file is, is, is uh, extremely useful. But to your point about 
assessment and, and people getting lazy uh, or losing that skill, yeah, you, you see it. Um, I don't know that it's a, it's a systemic problem, but I, I have noticed that among the inexperienced and or lazy is that they often suffer from, from anchoring uh, bias. They'll, they'll find, they'll seize on the first thing they find wrong with the patient and, and assume that that's all there is. And they stop assessing at that point, uh, especially in medical assessments, you know, where they're not typically taught to do a head to toe exam. Uh, they'll stop on that very first thing that they find out of whack and start uh, and start focusing their care on that. But but gathering a history, yeah, is, is it's there's a segment of our of our profession that's pretty lazy about that. Um, you know, I, I notice in, in our EPCR system, uh, one of the most common medications that that a patient takes is UTO, UTO, <laughs> unable to obtain. You know, oh, you know, yeah, I, I was on you yeah. once. Yeah, you you see that every t you see it all the time uh, when a patient is when a patient's uh, in the medical record and you can pull up their past history and, and auto populate your your forms, but no one no one ever bothers to to edit that or clean it up or quite often you see the only medication they listed is unable to obtain. Meanwhile, I have a Walmart sack full of pill bottles. And a patient perfectly willing to tell me their medical history, uh, yet they're they're big gaping holes uh, in their history and their their medication record uh, that obviously were not entered into the patient record uh, sure. on a previous trip. So yeah, it, it happens. But I think that and, uh, I, something we need to worry about. But I mean, I think that goes to even the point of uh, you know vital signs of one twenty eight over sixty eight, pulses eighty, respirations are sixteen. I mean, how often do we see that? But I think that that's, I think when we start to get into the inadequacies of patient assessment. But you said something I thought that was very interesting. And along with medic alert braces, Kelly, they are starting, and, and it's been around for a little bit, DNR tattoos are another one. Are, are they mm -hmm. valid? Are they legal in 50 states? But you said something that you don't think medic alert tattoos won't be valid in all 50 states. I, I want to touch on that a little bit because I don't see where you're saying that. How how can you say that it wouldn't be valid? I mean, if if I saw a medical alert, a, a bracelet or a tattoo on somebody, are you saying that my state is going to tell me don't honor that? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. I, I, I mean, you know, what's the what's the difference? The state doesn't govern medical alert bracelets. Well, no, but the state governs DNRs. Uh, every every state has. Fairly standard, but there are some some unique aspects to DNR uh, legislation, uh, and, and all the governing laws on that generally say that you look for a pollster, or a molster, or other whatever state specific DNR form or living will there is. It has to have a number, it has to have a date, it has to have the requisite signatures in in its original form, so on and so forth. And and I know that my state. Uh, my state requires a paper DNR or alternatively a registered DNR bracelet with the Louisiana Secretary of State. The problem is about 95% of EMS providers in the state of Louisiana have no idea that a DNR bracelet actually exists. You know, we've only had it for 20 years, but they have no idea that it even exists because, uh, you know, that was never widely advertised uh, on how to get one. But our, our Louisiana Secretary of State has a DNR database uh, that's a search, publicly searchable database um, where you can look up a person's DNR or living will um, uh, on this thing. And, and 
that information, you don't have to have the, the physical DNR in your hand, which, which makes it nice. But uh, most people don't know about that resource. But no, a DNR tattoo is not valid in, in quite a few states. Okay, so you're talking specifically, you're not talking specifically about a medic alert. I have, I have seizures, I have diabetes. Oh, no, I'm talking about you're a talking DNR. Specific, okay, yeah, because that's where, you know, that's, that's, I think, where the confusion is. So this, you know, this concept, I think, and, and I, I would have to agree with you. I would think that if I, you know, go and get a medic alert tattoo on my wrist that says DNR, um, that I wouldn't be able to honor that because that's not meeting the the, leg, the, the legalities of an, uh, a DNR, as you mentioned. I agree with that 100%. I thought your argument when you said won't be valid in all 50 states was for the sense of the medical, diabetes, seizure, uh, you know, things like that. Oh, no. For that, uh, yeah, any source of information would be would be great. Uh, I would I would probably put mine on my forearm uh, or over my antecubital fossa where my veins are best, you know, <laughs> in the hopes that some paramedic would be looking for it, flip my arm over and go, ah, okay. Um, he suffers from from whatever poor personality disorder. Yeah, uh, yeah I think that I think you incurable handsomeness. That's right. The best smelling paramedic disease. So I, I think that, you know, you bring up a good point is where do you put this to make sure that it's accessible? You know, if somebody's unconscious and, you know, we talk about this, this, you know, failure in patient assessment that, and maybe we should talk a little bit about that here in a little bit, but I think that, you know, the, the failure of patient assessment, if we see somebody that's unconscious or somebody that's, you know, has a little bit of uh, dementia, or someone that's having, you know, and one of the things that I talk about all the time is somebody who may not be there and we think that they have some type of mental illness, but are we really checking for metabolic disease to make sure they don't have a blood sugar of 17? I don't know that we do that well enough, but if we're going to put this on our forearm right over the areas where we're going to have to start an IV, I think that's the best place to do that. But, you know, I don't know that, uh, you know, today we're paying a lot of attention to look for those medic alert bracelets. And we're really doing our due diligence to give the patient 100% of what we have. And and uh, I I kind of I'm excited about this medical tattoo. I, I'm with you 100% on the DNR. Um, but I think that we're not doing a good enough job of recognizing or or trying to find the past medical history of somebody who's uh, unable to uh, unable to give it to us. Yeah, and and you know all too often we we. Yeah, we get lazy with that um, because we we stop asking questions sometimes, uh, and it is laziness. Uh, we stop asking questions when we think we've arrived at the answer to the question. You know, when we when we've arrived at a at a diagnosis or, or shortened our list of differentials down to the you know three choices that really doesn't matter between uh, treatment wise. Um, we 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 generally stop asking questions. Uh, you see that a lot. It's not something that should happen because quite often that, that little nugget of information uh, that you didn't ask is, is extremely relevant to the patient's care. You know, Chris, how, how often have you dropped off a, a patient at the hospital and the nurse uh, or the ED physician asked them the exact same questions you gave them the answers to, and then the patient said something entirely different? You know, or sometimes I've dropped no, off patients. You think someone kidnapped them when I wasn't looking and, and replaced them with an exact duplicate with an entirely different history. Uh, as the old saying goes, history never repeats itself. So, 
you know, sometimes you can, you can ask that question several times and get a different answer or a more complete answer each time. And we, it behooves us and our patients to, to keep asking those questions and, and try different tacks at it if the patient is a poor historian. But, you know, many patients plain, plainly are poor historians. And I could see a role for, for medical tattoos uh, uh, in, in providing more thorough information uh, when, when the patient really can't tell you themselves. And they don't have to be demented for that. How many, how many patients have we encountered over the years that just simply didn't know anything about their own medical care? And they didn't have the overbearing yeah. spouse that could answer every question for you. Uh, yeah, right. or, or they have, or they'll tell you that you know you ask them if they have heart problems, lung problems, diabetes, and then they'll say no, and then you ask them what medication there are, and they're on uh, lisinopril, the or they're on uh, dubtiazem, or they're on all those medications. All those medications just take care of my heart problems, lung problems. Exactly. So I don't have it anymore. I don't have it anymore, right? But uh, you know, <laughs> Kelly, I, I think that this it really comes down to being the, and I used to say this all the time when I taught my EMTs and paramedics. I think your patient assessment skill is the most important skill that you have as an EMS provider, and you become the ultimate detective of the body. And, and if you're not looking yeah. for all the clues and if you're not trying to figure that out, you're really selling yourself short because you're not going to know, you know, you really, you're just a protocol paramedic where you say if they have this, do this, if they have A, do B, and you're not really developing your skills to be a clinician because you're not taking that time to do that. But uh, let's go ahead. I, I do want to talk a little bit about the failure of patient assessment, but before we do that, certainty in uncertain situations, this is one of the things you need to do your job wherever you are, and it's why Medtronic offers capnography and pulse oximetry monitoring solutions that are designed to give you early insights into your patient's breathing. Act faster and intervene sooner. Find out how at Medtronic.com slash EMS. And I think that, you know, that's this mid-show ad really kind of talks about, I mean, one of the, the key things that I said here is act faster and intervene sooner. We need the right information. We need to be able to make certain that we're picking the proper protocol or we're picking the proper treatment to deliver the highest quality of patient care. And, and Kelly, we're touching on a little bit about this medical alert tattoo, these medical alert bracelets. And I don't know, and, I, and I've watched and seen EMTs and paramedics over the years become complacent, become sloppy, and not take pride in their patient assessment. I mean, when you said unable to obtain, is it that it's unable to obtain or they don't want to go through the process of writing down the 20 meds that these, these patients are going to have? And I think we're losing the art. I, I think we need to be able to put the patient back into the patient assessment because I think they're starting to, you know, uh, you know, leave that. I mean, we're not sitting next to the patient anymore and holding their hand. We're sitting behind them in the captain's chair. And, and we're just, you know, we're fudging, dare I say, fudging the vital signs for the second set of 128 over 68, pulses 80, respirations of 16. And, you know, Kelly, you as, a, as, a, as an instructor, you as an educator, one of the foremost educators in the United States when it comes to initial education of EMTs, what's going on here with this, this much-needed skill? Again, I think patient assessment is the most important skill an EMT or paramedic has. It's not IV skills. It's not intubation skills. It's not giving ANAs. It really is your patient assessment skills. This is truly becoming a lost art. Yeah, I, I, it's not a new thing. I don't know becoming a lost art is, is necessarily, uh, valid, uh, but it, it's certainly not a new thing. I mean, what, what does WNL stand for, Chris? We never looked. 
What is NKDH for? Not known, didn't ask. Uh, you know, that, that's been a running joke for as long as I've been in EMS, that when people write that, that's uh, some medics, that's what they actually mean rather than, than the true uh, uh, meaning of those abbreviations. So it, it's been around forever. Uh, we do have a tendency to rely more on technology uh, than, than physical hands-on assessment. Uh, but paradoxically, perversely even, uh, we still haven't unlocked uh, the potential of the technology that we're using. You know, I, I, I don't know. We have $25,000, $30,000 cardiac monitors with all the bells and whistles that are able to, to monitor multiple parameters and do so accurately, yet um, those things are quite often not applied. You know, capnography uh, typically is, is applied to people in cardiac arrest or respiratory arrest when you've inserted an advanced airway. How many people are not putting them on, uh, putting the capnography uh, uh, cannula on in a spontaneously breathing patient? Generally, you know, the, the indication for, for waveform capnography is, an, uh, is a sick patient, and it doesn't have to be a respiratory problem. It's an, it's an excellent indirect measure of perfusion as well, yet no one uses it that way. Um, I just got back from, from uh, uh, Wisconsin talking about uh, how vital are vital signs. And, and the premise of that lecture was, was often, all too often, inexperienced or, or very new providers uh, tend to anchor on numbers rather than look at the entire patient. And I presented a few scenarios where, where vital signs were not necessary to, to intervene uh, and, and provide life-saving um, uh measures for the patient, uh, and a couple other scenarios where vital signs, at least some numbers, were absolutely essential. Uh, but but uh, new medics and new ENTs often don't distinguish uh, between those two patients very well. Uh, I talked about um, uh, PLEF variability on the pulse oximeter as a mean indirect uh, measure of, of hypovolemia and, and the passive leg raise. Uh, in using a waveform capnography to measure a change in, uh, in CO2 with a passive leg raise as another way of uh, identifying central hypovolemia before the patient is frankly shocking. Um, and what's funny is I had a lot of people just, just uh, flabbergasted at that lecture, and they, they never realized that you could use it for that. And then they go to David Pfeiffer's lecture an hour later, and he is saying those exact same things. David was a little bit taken aback because through everything he's talking about, um, which was, was great information, people are elbowing each other and laughing and pointing at me. And, and uh, he asked them what was up. And he said, well, you know, he already talked about that an hour ago. Um, but, but the point was is that David was, was actually putting more meat uh, in his lecture about uh, about what the pleth variability means and what the shock index is and, and, and the value of mean arterial pressure over systolic blood pressure. I talked about it in broad terms, but he actually put numbers to it uh, that the, the, the learner could, could, uh, could actually bring home and, and, and put into effect. We don't use everything that's available to us, including our freaking brains and our hands. Um, teaching people how to perform a skill sheet and then leaving it at that. Maybe that's well, I think that that's, but I think that that's what we're talking about here. When we talk about the development of your skills in patient assessment, I mean, you go to a 56, 57, 60-year-old male who fell down in the yard 
and it's hurt his knee, and he's calling you for knee pain. We do our thing, and we get there, and we say, okay, knee pain. How does your knee feel? Well, it feels okay. How does everything else feel? Yeah, I feel all good. Let's talk about your past medical history. You know, I don't really have a past medical history. You know, I take some, you know, I take some over-the-counter, um, you know, allergy stuff. You know, I, I take, uh, you know, I take some uh, daily vitamins. I take some calcium. Uh, so I don't really have a past medical history. I'm not allergic to any medications. And we're treating the knee pain. But are we looking for the yeah. new onset of cardiac issues? Are we listening to their heart? Are we listening to their lungs? And, and that's another thing that we don't do is we don't listen to those heart tones and make the determination what the heart is doing or we're not listening to those lung sounds. And I think you bring up a really good point where you talk about the vital signs and the vital signs are not just a number. If you are able to understand what the numbers mean, and if you're able to understand, you can determine what's going on with the heart, what's going on with the cardiovascular system based on what those numbers are telling you. Now you put into the, the process of putting a patient on a cardiac monitor, every single patient in this day and age, the standard of care is capnography. Every single patient should be on capnography, uh, regardless of what it is, just to get a reading uh, just to make the determination what yeah. those numbers look like. But this is kind of what I'm talking about. When we think about the lost art of patient assessment, and you, you could say that it's new or it's not new, but if we know that it's not new, what, how come we're not doing anything to fix it kind of thing? But this is what I'm talking about. The difference between being a shotgun paramedic or a protocol paramedic and uh -huh. turning into a clinician is the fact that you're using the diagnostic equipment, is the fact that you understand the pathophysiology of what the vital signs are telling us. It's that you have a comprehension of the fact that just because uh, somebody fell in the yard could have been a sinkable episode that they don't realize that they fell to the ground because they were lightheaded and then all of a sudden now they have knee pain. But meanwhile, they got congestive heart failure or a new yeah. onset of uh, AFib. So I, I think that this is what I'm talking about here. So, you know, we started this, this conversation off, Kelly, talking about medic alert bracelets and all we find in the things that we need to help us do their job. But I think it now moves into the process of saying, I don't know that we're doing the job well enough because we're failing in the patient assessment. We're taking the patient out of the patient assessment because we're, we don't want to obtain, unable to obtain, we don't want to obtain. Yeah. I, you know, I, I have to ask you this, man. How much of this, how much of your passion about this is a, is a case of get off my lawn syndrome? Are you saying these kids these days just don't really know how to talk to people and assess people and they, they put the machine on and immediately start uh, going to their electronic PCR or, or um, I, I have a hard time believing that you didn't see it personally when you were on a truck. Um, I, it's yeah, my I belief. That, go ahead. You no, know, I mean, I think I did. I think I did see it when I was yeah. on a truck, but I, I wasn't doing it. And, and anybody that I had the opportunity to train as an FTO, they weren't doing it. But I, I don't know that – I think my point I'm trying to bring up here is to say that the, it's not about the kids today. I think, no. that, I think that patient assessment is one of those skills that people just don't care about in our career field is the point I'm trying to make. I don't know that I'm yeah. trying to make it a generational thing. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to make it the lost art thing. And, and you said I don't know that it's a lost art that it's been going on forever. It's been a lost art for a long time that people – you know, if, you know, when you listen to somebody's heart tones, and I was a paramedic that loved to listen to heart tones, you know, you have your normal S1, you have your normal S2, and it's a lub-dub, lub-dub, we hear it all the time. 
But if you have an S3 Gallup and you understand what an S3 Gallup is, yeah. now you're going to be able to say if they don't have congestive heart failure, they're going to have it soon. You know what I mean? So, And here's what I want to say. I want to touch on this because I say this all the time, and I think it's been a bit since I've said it, Kelly. Every single patient should be on capnography. This is new to my, yeah. to my saying here. Every single patient, you should listen to their heart sounds. Every single patient, you should listen to their lung sounds, even if they have toe pain, because you want to know what normal is. You want to know what normal air is coming in and out of the lungs. You want to know what a normal S1 and S2 sounds like. All of a sudden, one day, you're going to put your stethoscope on, on the lower lobes of somebody's back or on the upper lobes of somebody's back, and you're going to hear something that's not normal. You may not know what it is, but when you get to the hospital, you can say, Doc, I hear something funky in the lungs. What is that? Now, you just taught yourself what raw guy sounds like. You just taught yourself what Strider sounds like. I mean, we don't get this education in these, in these initial trainings. We say no. Strider is this. Wheezing is this. Ronchi is this. Crackles are this. But we do we really have enough practice? Same thing with the lub dub. Normal S1 and S2. You're going to put it in the right spots. You know, you're going to go uh, in the you know upper parts of the chest. You're going to go in the lower part. Don't forget herbs point, which is the third intercostal space in the midclavicular line. And now you're going to listen to S1 and S2, normal, S1 and S2. When my daughter was little and she would lay on my chest and I would all and say, oh, my gosh, look what I did, look what I created. You know what? I paid for her in the hospital, and I would set my stethoscope on her back, and I would listen to her heart for hours. So when I listened to a pediatric patient's heart, I would understand the normal process of S1 and S2. So my points yeah. are listen to everybody and understand normal. When you hear something abnormal, you've just taught yourself what that is. So, Yeah. And, you, you know, that's, I think every physician since Galen has, has decried uh, the, the following generation, uh, their, their degradation of their skills and knowledge. So I, I don't think it's a new thing, but it's a universal thing. And, and the fact that it, that it, we still talk about it even today uh, demonstrates that it's still a problem. You know, I like to point out little historical uh, vignettes to my students just to demonstrate uh, the value of patient assessment and what you can learn from it. Did you know that Winkybach, for example, discovered the Winkybach phenomenon before the EKG was invented, several years before uh, Eindhoven invented his EKG? Uh, Winkybach noticed uh, Winkybach phenomenon uh, by measuring pulse pressures and jugular venous distension and noticed a repeating pattern uh, that that was not actually seen or visualized until they invented the EKG. Uh, he did that with pure physical assessment and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and history is replete with, with, uh, with tidbits like that. You know, I use occasionally, I use auscultative percussion and tactile vocal fremitus. Uh, in assessing my patients, particularly when there's a, uh, a high ambient noise environment uh, in the case of tactile primitus and, and, and the auscultatory percussion is an old technique that predates x-rays. Well, you know, in, in the field, we don't have x-rays. So uh, occasionally it comes in useful. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that, that uh, a, a lot of, of EMTs uh, are using all of the, the knowledge and skills that they have available. I think that some people think that there's a ceiling on their knowledge uh, and that the, um, they don't understand that you can never know too much about a patient. Um, but I don't think that's limited to EMS. But, hey, that's what we think. 
We'd like to hear what you think. Do you think that patient assessment is becoming a lost art? Is it laziness? Uh, is it not being taught well? Or is it just complacency? Give us your thoughts at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself, co-host Chris Sabalero and our show sponsor, Medtronic. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.